turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind, with beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com myths for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code myths to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This week on Myths and Legends, we are actually starting the Trojan War. You'll see the world's first helicopter parent and how that got thousands of guys killed and learn that it might be a bad idea to mobilize thousands of troops based on a dream, especially if that dream came from Zeus. The creature this week is Little Tofu Boy. He's a little boy with tofu and claws. This is Myths and Legends, episode 177A, Rage. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. We're here. We've arrived, finally, at the Trojan War. It has been a long boat ride to get here, so we'll do a short recap on who everyone is and their backstory. On the post linked in the show notes, I have a list of episodes I'm about to pretty thoroughly spoil, so if you want to listen to the history of the Trojan War in its entirety, you can. Oh, and if you don't want the recap, the real story starts at about six and a half minutes in. Briefly, the Greeks are led by Agamemnon and his brother, Menelaus. They were two sons in this very cursed family. They did pretty well for themselves, though. After being raised in exile in Sparta, Agamemnon took control of his ancestral kingdom of Mycenae, and Menelaus won the hand of the beautiful Helen of Sparta. It wasn't exactly that easy, though, because everyone wanted to marry Helen of Sparta, princess and secret daughter of Zeus in the form of a swan, because why not? Born from an egg, Helen had suitors from all over the Greek world, like everywhere. Pretty much every king and hero and demigod of note came to try for her hand. And they presented the king of Sparta, her father, with a problem. There was only one Helen. Enter another king, a quick-thinking up-and-comer who went by the name Odysseus. Odysseus was the leader of a small island kingdom named Ithaca. And he knew he didn't have the pedigree to marry Helen. So he found another way to get a leg up in the world. He went to the king of Sparta with an idea that all the kings and heroes be forced to swear an oath beforehand that whoever is not picked to marry Helen would support and come to the aid of Helen and her new husband, whoever that happened to be, with the main thrust being you can't kill someone after vowing to help them, especially not in the Greek world. Menelaus was picked, married the princess of Sparta, and while no one else was happy, everyone went home and continued on with their lives. Meanwhile, on Olympus, the goddesses were arguing. A few years back, at the marriage of Thetis and Peleus, the future parents of Achilles, the goddess of discord was not invited. I don't know what's a worse idea, inviting the goddess of discord to your wedding or not inviting the goddess of discord to your wedding. Because, at the best slash worst possible moment, a golden apple rolled into the wedding and came to rest between Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena. That apple read, To the fairest. The three bumped heads reaching for it, and decided to get some outside consultation. 
Zeus, who displays good decision-making when it comes to saving his own skin, wisely backed out of the judging, and a young Trojan prince by the name of Paris was chosen. All three goddesses bribed him, and he just went with the best bribe, Aphrodite's. If he chose her as the most beautiful of the goddesses, then he would get the most beautiful human woman. The most beautiful human woman? Helen. The one who, about a decade ago, married Menelaus. Paris handed Aphrodite the apple, and he sailed west for Sparta. Helen went with him, slash was abducted, and the world ignited. Suddenly, that oath everyone had made 12 years ago was very relevant, and Agamemnon sailed, calling on kings to honor their oaths, to come to the aid of the now king of Sparta, his brother, Menelaus. The trickiest get was Odysseus, who pretended to have gone mad in the intervening years, because of a prophecy that Troy would only be taken in the 10th year of the war, not wanting to leave his wife, Penelope, the Spartan princess he had won for creating the oath that was now getting everyone in so much trouble, and his son, Telemachus, Odysseus pretended to be mad, sowing salt in the fields. He would have gotten away with it too, if not for the meddling son of a sea god, Palamedes, who placed the baby Telemachus before the plow and forced Odysseus to admit he wasn't mad. Odysseus went with Diomedes to recruit Achilles, the son of Thetis, finding him hiding out as a woman on Syros, at the behest of his mother, the Nereid Thetis. He had fathered a child there with the daughter of the king, but he was lured away from his safety by promises of glory, and so he went to join the troops Mastodolus. When we last met Agamemnon, Menelaus, Odysseus, Achilles, and friends, Agamemnon had just sacrificed one of his daughters, Iphigenia, so that they could get a favorable wind. No one really felt good about it, but the gods demanded it, so it had to be done. Of note, Agamemnon lied to her and told her she was to marry Achilles, the famous son of Thetis, and Achilles was one of the few to come to Iphigenia's aid, threatening to hold off all of the Greeks before she willingly sacrificed herself for the glory of Greece and her uncle's love life. The day will come when sacred Troy must die. Priam, the king of Troy, looked out on the ocean. The day will come when sacred Troy must die. His son, his eldest, Hector had said that. He said it the day Paris came back with the woman. Nothing about this was normal. Paris told him about Aphrodite and the contest. The Greeks knew about Helen before they should have. The coming war was a beautiful tapestry of pride and miscommunication woven by the gods themselves who needed entertainment for their endless, broken lives. Priam had contended with the gods before. Troy had contended with gods before. Heracles himself had broken the city once, taking Priam's sister and leaving a boy to be king. The day would come when sacred Troy must die. Everything died. All cities, no matter how sacred, would one day crumble. Priam looked out on the sea, choked with the Greek triremes. The consequences of a thousand inconsequential events had come to his doorstep. Would Troy die today? Would it die tomorrow, this year, this decade? Priam didn't know. 
but he had done this before. He had fought with gods and lived. He, his line, his walls, and his city would be strong until the end. The day would come when sacred Troy must die. But this day, and every day, Priam would give all he had to fight against that fate. To keep a home for his children and his people. He turned, and with a nod, told Cookness to go meet their new visitors. Blood-laden water was about to reach Achilles' Myrmidons, the men from his kingdom. They watched the slaughter. When were they going to go ashore? Achilles only held up a hand and shook his head. Not yet. The Trojans had been ready, and the ocean drank deep of the blood of those who had breached the shoreline first. They were ready because the great general himself, Odysseus, supposedly the smartest of men, had sailed ahead with Menelaus. They had inadvertently warned Priam, the king of the Trojans, that the entirety of Greece had been mobilized against them. This was it, their final warning. When the Greeks made landfall, like the oncoming storm that they were, words would be useless. That's what they had said. But that storm was now breaking on the Trojan shores, and the first life had been claimed. A Greek by the name of Protasilius. But Achilles and his Myrbinods watched the other boats land first. They watched them go up against the killing machine that was a well-prepared and well-provisioned Trojan army. Achilles scanned the battle and grinned. Now. His men, his Myrbinods, rode forward and the boats scraped to a stop. Achilles joined the battle. It's said that he landed so epically that a freshwater spring sprouted underneath his feet, which, no matter whose side you're on, that showmanship. Achilles battled among the fray, pushing his way to the obvious leader, a giant of a man at the center of everything without a scratch on him. Achilles gripped his spear and he yelled out, whoever you are, take this for comfort. It's Achilles of Thessaly who killed you, which that's not comfort. Who's comforted by that? Anyway, further not giving him comfort, he stabbed the man in the chest. But the spear that pierced the armor, only glanced off the man's overdeveloped peck. Achilles was puzzled. That that wasn't what usually happened when he stabbed people in the chest. He tried again and again, and again and again the spear stopped. The tip blunted on the skin. He looked up to the smiling giant. <laughs> Achilles, the man said, the son of Thetis? Well, that was a nice little demigod resume Achilles had but Cookness had a better one. He was the son of Poseidon himself, ruler of the seas and the ruler of Thetis. Achilles was quick, though. While Cookness gloated, he was switching things up, bringing out a sling with a stone in it. When Cookness, the son of Poseidon, looked back at the young man, it would only be for moments before the stone cracked his forehead. This wasn't a Goliath situation, though. Cookness wasn't dead, he just staggered backwards, dazed. A few seconds of an opening, though, was all Achilles needed. He jumped and caught the demigod off balance, and both men dropped to the ground. While they fell, Achilles took his sling and looped it around the demigod's neck. Couldn't be stabbed, huh? Well, they try this. 
and it worked. Even though Cucnus wielded Achilles, the son of Thetis didn't let go until Cucnus's arms went limp, dust springing up from the dirt around them. When Achilles relaxed, more dust was being kicked up by the retreating army. Their champion dead, the Trojans were running back to their walled city. Achilles breathed, and then he noticed something. Cucnus did not have a head anymore. Arms, either. His armor was still moving, though. As Achilles cut the armor away, a swan flew out and into the sky. As a sort of last kindness by his father, Cucnus had been turned into a swan by Poseidon. Achilles cocked an eyebrow. Weird. A thousand black ships found their way to the beach as the Greek army pulled them onto the sand and set up camp. The war had begun. Weeks later, Odysseus stood in the doorway of Palamedes' tent. He cleared his throat when Palamedes, who was lost in thought, didn't notice him. Palamedes looked up. Oh, hi, Odysseus. What do you want? Odysseus shook his head. Nothing in particular. He just wanted Palamedes to know it was Telemachus's birthday today. Palamedes shook his head. The name didn't ring any bells. Oh, Odysseus' son, right? The one you laid down in a field. The one I almost ran over with an ox because of you. Odysseus reminded the man. Palamedes tapped his head. Oh, yeah, the one who would have a coward, you know, an oathbreaker for a father if I didn't intervene and help you out of your, uh, what was it, madness? This was an oath you came up with, by the way, the reason we're all here. Look, does this have a point? Palamedes said, standing to face the wily, broad-shouldered king. Odysseus shook his head. He just wanted Palamedes to know. Just then, a horn blew. What's that? Palamedes asked while emerging from his tent. Odysseus looked behind him. Oh, Palamedes hadn't heard? They were moving. It wasn't a big move, but the entirety of the Greek force was moving down the beach a bit. Someone had a dream the night before, a message from the gods that doom would follow if they stayed in the same spot. So they were moving. Odysseus patted the man on the back and said, well, he better get packed up. The Greek forces are compared to bees or birds, they're so numerous. But early on in the war, they were well-ordered. So in a day's time, they had moved, and that included the prisoners. As it turns out, Achilles had been very busy, going from city to city, putting each of them to the sword, gathering loot for the Greeks while cutting off precious Trojan supplies. They also took prisoners, one of the prisoners that Odysseus was now breaking out. The Phrygian man looked up quizzically. Uh, what? Odysseus glanced back at the guards he had drugged. He turned to the prisoner. Odysseus said he was secretly working for Priam, the king of Troy. The captive should come with him if he wanted to live. The man scrambled to his feet and held out his wrists. Odysseus cut the bonds and, together, they picked their way in between tents and stole out of the Greek camp. They found themselves out on the plains of battle, the expanse already stained with the blood of heroes. And Odysseus pointed in the direction of Troy. He had a note he wanted to get to Priam. It was their next target, so the Trojans could be ready. As the captive took the note, 
he shook his head in disbelief. Odysseus, the legendary Greek king, a traitor? He couldn't believe it. Their eyes had adjusted to the darkness, so the captive could see the look on Odysseus's face. The one of surprise. But wow, then the captive was smarter than he looked. Because of the darkness, the Ithacan king's knife didn't flash, and the captive only knew it was there when he felt it on his throat. That night, the plains gulped the black blood of yet another young man. The next morning, Odysseus entered the tent of Agamemnon. There was bad news and good news and bad news. The bad news was that a Phrygian captive had escaped last night. The good news was that one of Odysseus's men had found him while on patrol and killed him on sight. The further bad news? They had a traitor among them. The guards had been drugged, and the captive had been set free. Odysseus handed Agamemnon the note that one of Menelaus's men had found on the body. It was a note to Priam, the king of Troy himself, from... Agamemnon looked up. Palamedes. Really? Odysseus told him to keep reading. On the next new moon, Palamedes would kill or incapacitate key watches. He would leave the Greek camp open for the complete annihilation at the hands of the Trojans. The note thanked the king for the gold. 300 pieces, Agamemnon said with a shake of his head. They should have been worth more. He folded the note to put it away. All right, they were going to go talk to Palamedes. We'll see what Odysseus is up to, because he is always up to something. But that will be right after this. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Palamedes looked at Odysseus as the soldiers tore through the tent of the accused. It's not here, one yelled back. The 300 pieces of gold would be hard to hide. Agamemnon sighed and pinched the bridge of his nose. Sorry, Palamedes. Someone was trying to sow discord among the Greeks. Yeah, I wonder who, Palamedes said, before turning to pick up the belongings that were strewn across his tent. Agamemnon turned to the Ithacan king. Odysseus, a word. But Odysseus wasn't looking at him. He was looking at the cloud of dust coming from down the beach, from the former camp. I had the same thought as you, Odysseus said to the high king. 
he thought that the gold would be in Palamedes' tent. But then he remembered. Palamedes moved tents just two days ago. He couldn't be seen lugging that much unaccounted for gold. Odysseus thought about what he would do. He wasn't as smart as Palamedes, but he figured he would bury it and then come back for it later. So he had some of his men go check. He knew how serious these charges were too, so he had other men go with his. Some of Menelaus's, Ajax's, even Agamemnon's top men went with the Ithacans. And sure enough, they had found the gold. 300 pieces that had been hastily buried exactly in the spot where Palamedes' tent had been. The whole army knew at this point. Palamedes was a traitor. Palamedes had to die. Agamemnon looked at Odysseus. Odysseus whose men killed the prisoner and Odysseus who directed the party to find the gold at the old campsite. Agamemnon knew what happened on Ithaca. He knew what this was. And yet, they couldn't have traitors. The warriors were whipped up into a frenzy. They wanted blood. Agamemnon could stop them, probably, but at best, it would look like he was showing favoritism to a friend. And at worst, like he was in league with Palamedes. Odysseus had buttoned everything up perfectly. The high king sighed and stepped aside. Palamedes was pulled from his tent and, again, said he didn't have the gold. The men parted, revealing the bag. He asked where they got it, and they told him the old campsite. They knew he buried it right before they moved, before Odysseus had the dream. Palamedes swallowed hard and turned to Odysseus. It was at that moment that he realized just how deeply, irrevocably doomed he was. The dream, it had been Odysseus's, to get them to move, to get access to his campsite. All this had been planned days, weeks in advance. At a loss, Palamedes only shook his head. His last words were simply babbling that he was innocent. He didn't do it. This wasn't his gold. The army tied him to a pole and picked up the stones. As Palamedes screamed, the man who had been not only one of Agamemnon and Menelaus' top generals, but their friend, Agamemnon turned to Odysseus in shock. The Ithacan king nodded and picked up a stone. We should go. He's cursed. We never should have come here. Agamemnon caught those words every so often through his tent. Only wine and sleep stopped them from drumming ceaselessly in his head. And sleep didn't come easy these days. So, he took another drink. Maybe they were right. Maybe he was cursed. It had been nine years. Nine years since he had walked ashore in the blood-dimmed tides. Nine years since he had declared Troy's final day. But Troy still stood, and Agamemnon and the Greeks were on the brink of collapse. Sieges were relatively straightforward, sure. Troy was a walled city, and walls, large, looming, and strong, were pretty indefatigable. The people behind the walls, though, that was the weak point. People would get hungry, bored, and sick. One guard who didn't care about the quarrels of kings, who just wanted his children to stop starving, and his friends to stop dying from plague, 
might be persuaded to take a sum of money that would make Midas blush and open the gate. The Trojan resolve certainly wasn't helped by what was going on outside. Outside, an unstoppable force was claiming each of the cities that allied themselves to Troy. Achilles. His name was echoed with praise by the Greeks and fear by the Trojans. He chased Aeneas, the son of Aphrodite, into Troy and into the war. He killed Hector's father-in-law and all seven of his brothers-in-law on the same day. While he raged, Troy was on the ropes. And while they starved, the Greeks were flushed with wine and women and more rations than they knew what to do with. Nine years might have passed, but Troy didn't have much time left. Or so Agamemnon thought, until last week. It wasn't one dead man. It wasn't ten. It was fifty. All at once, and they weren't dead from fighting or fires. But fever, there was a plague sweeping through the Greek army. It's Agamemnon, the high king heard from outside his tent. <sighs> he took a deep breath. What now? He exited his tent, wine bottle still in hand, to see a gathering of his top men. We were about to come get you, Odysseus said. Menelaus nodded. Agamemnon looked at the prophet, standing next to Achilles. Nine years. After nine years, Achilles' tent by the black ships was the home he had been in the longest. The boy had grown into a man. He had grown tall and strong, leading the men from the front. What's my fault now besides everything? Agamemnon asked the prophet. This was his life now. They were at a stalemate until the Trojans either gave up from starvation or the Greeks succumbed to plague. It was a race to the bottom at this point, so his job was settling petty squabbles between warriors from countless kingdoms. He was basically now dad to a bunch of preschoolers with spears. The plague. Agamemnon is responsible for the plague, Calchas said, and stepped closer to Achilles. You know what? He was just going to move completely behind Achilles. That felt better. Agamemnon rolled his eyes. Cool. He was going back to bed. The prophet said it was a man. A man Agamemnon had turned away last week with threats of violence. I turn a lot of people away with threats of violence. You're going to need to be more specific, Agamemnon said, before taking another long swig. It was Chryseis. Her father was a priest of Apollo, the archer. Apollo was causing the plague, and he needed to be placated. Calchas said that Agamemnon needed to give the girl back. Agamemnon snapped his fingers. Chryseis, yeah, the, my captive. The one I said who would spend her life in Argos, living between my kitchen and my bed. She's nice too. Way nicer than my wife. My wife is all like, oh, why did you sacrifice our daughter for your war? I mean, get over it, right? Uh, but no. I'm the king. I earned my captive. She's not going back. We'll deal with the plague and... Achilles? Was that an eye roll? Achilles smirked. Yes, it was. I mean, earned her? Really? Were they supposed to just sit here and take that with a straight face? I mean, they all earned their problematic captives, and he was the king who planned this whole party, so he got the best. But they've been roommates for like nine years now. Let's be real. The only reason Agamemnon got anything was because he was the high king, not that he earned it. The rest of them had to work for their plunder. Is that so? Agamemnon said, walking and looming over his champion. That's so, 
Achilles replied, meeting the gaze of his king. You know what? Change of plans, Agamemnon said. I will placate Apollo. I'll give the girl back, but uh, I want another one. Achilles, give me yours. Achilles glared. Yeah, see what happens. Agamemnon shrugged. What would you do? What could he do? Achilles pointed to the boats. For one, he wasn't stuck here like the rest of these chumps. He didn't swear an oath. He could leave any time he wanted. Good, go, desert, Agamemnon said, turning. They didn't need Achilles. <laughs> Achilles laughed. Uh, they kind of did. He took every city. He had the Trojans on their heels. You took low-hanging fruit, Agamemnon replied. The first person to take candy from a baby isn't some legendary warrior. He's the first person to take candy from a baby. Nearly 10 years on, Troy still stands. But no, you're awesome. Some great warrior. You know what? It's official. I'll meet you by your tent to take what? Perseus? Is that her name? Yeah, I'll come get her. You can learn just how little you matter. Just how much greater I am than you. The problem with provoking a mythical killing machine is exactly that. Achilles had made the mental calculations from the moment he stepped before Agamemnon's tent. Odysseus would step back. It was the smart move. Menelaus would be caught flat-footed. Diomedes and Ajax were too far off, and Agamemnon? Maybe 15 years and three bottles of wine ago, he might have stood a chance. Achilles drew his sword. No one talked to him like that not even the High King. That was when he felt a hand on his hair, the moment everything around the fire slowed. The chattering of thousands on the beach was muted. The world turned black and white, frozen, except for Achilles and his visitor. Athena held him. Ah, come on! Achilles complained. You're hearing this, right? This is the ancient Greek world. Honor is a massive deal. Just let me shove my sword a little bit all the way through his temple. Just let me have this. You know we can't let you do this, right? Athena said. Hera and I, you can't do this. One day, three full gifts would lay before you to pay for this outrage, I promise, Athena said, trying to quell Achilles' famous rage. Gifts like human women? Achilles asked, sheathing his sword. Okay, don't be gross. Athena said. She removed her hand from Achilles' hair, and the world sped up, color flooding back into the surroundings, and the cacophony of men at rest echoing around them. While Achilles was conversing with Athena, Nestor was trying to speak some sense into Agamemnon. For the life of me, I cannot remember if I mentioned Nestor in our Argonaut episodes. And if you didn't know that Nestor was an Argonaut with an action-filled life, just wait five minutes, he'll tell you. The generation before the Trojan War, that of Theseus, Heracles, Jason, Bellerophon, and others, was revered even by the people in today's story. And Nestor fought and sailed alongside both of those groups of legends. He was revered as a source of wisdom. Except in this pivotal moment. Agamemnon brushed his advice aside and told Achilles to have the girl ready. Achilles said that he hoped Agamemnon came to get her himself. He'd give the High King a little something extra like a spear to the stomach. Also, I quit. My Myrmidons, too. I'll be by my ship. 
waiting for when you guys are dying because I'm not out there being awesome. Peace. Well, I mean, not really. This is the Trojan War. The thing is, Achilles knew he was awesome. It was right there in the prophecy about his short, doomed life. But he really didn't want to wait around, though. So, to hedge his bet, he called some outside help. Mom, Achilles said as he sat by the shore. Patroclus had just surrendered Briseis to the guys Agamemnon had sent. No, he didn't come himself. And now Achilles was having just a really good cry on the beach. His mom, a Nereid, a sea nymph, could fast travel through the sea, and she appeared on the surf. She saw Achilles and gasped. Oh no, my sweet baby, my sweet rage-filled murderous baby, what happened? Achilles explained that the war was going well, it's just, there was this other boy that was really mean to him. It's just, he took Achilles as slave and now Achilles was sad. Could she... (sighs) Maybe talk to Zeus about killing a lot of the Greeks so that they missed him and wanted him back? Thetis held her boy. Wow, okay, there was a lot there, but don't you worry, baby. She stroked his hair. Mommy will take care of it. Zeus will be back in about two weeks. After he got back, she would talk to him. He still owed her a favor from the time she saved his life, when all the other Olympians got tired of his crap and staged a coup. She told him not to worry. Mom will take care of it. You leave it to me. I read the Iliad a long time ago, and I thought, of course Thetis would help him out. She's his mom. Except that her whole life up to this point has been trying to keep him out of the war, warning him about stuff, sheltering him on Syros, The Iliad version is 100% the authoritative version, full stop, but it just makes it hard when you're trying to craft a continuity over a dozen episodes and about as many works. Anyway, over the next two weeks, after Agamemnon returned the girl and made sacrifices to Apollo, things settled down for the Greek camp. The diseases stopped, and they resumed their boring, interminable siege. On Olympus, though, things were heating up. Hera had just seen Thetis come and go. Thetis, the mother of Achilles, who had thwarted all of their plans the time they had Zeus tied up. Now, she was no doubt here trying to work on behalf of her son. Thetis had her hand on Zeus's knee. The king of the gods gave her a furtive nod. This wasn't good. What did Thetis have to say? Hera asked, as she and Athena went to confront Zeus. Zeus thought about it. Yeah, that was Thetis. Ah. Hera narrowed her eyes. Hmm. A lot of chatter among the prayers from the humans about Achilles. Apparently he wants the Trojans to kill a bunch of Greeks, so they invite him back. Zeus wasn't about to do that, was he? Hmm. Zeus exhaled. They were starting early today. All right. He rose and turned to Hera. Always with the trying to figure out his plans. And what would you do? Hera said that she and Athena and, like, Half the gods were pro-Greek. They would, Zeus cut her off. No, that's not what he meant. If he chose to help the Trojans, what would she do? 
What could she do? Hera looked to the ground. Zeus smirked. That's what he thought. She should know her place. She tried once, and she should have learned a valuable lesson on that day. Not even if all of heaven was on her side. Nothing could stop him if he came for her. Nothing. Zeus walked away. He had a dream to find. Hey, you're lying dream, right? Zeus asked in a dark alley on Olympus. Lying dream turned to the king of the Olympians. He said that yes, he was. Or was he? Did we just invent the liar paradox? I think we invented the liar paradox. Zeus pinched the bridge of his nose. Look, rosy-fingered Don is going to be around soon to announce the morning. He didn't have time for cutesy philosophical wordplay. Was this guy lying dream or not? Lying dream sighed. Zeus, taking all the fun out of it. Yeah, he's lying dream. How could he help? So, let me get this straight, Odysseus said. You had a dream where Zeus told you the best time to attack was right now. And so we should bet the lives of thousands on the idea that not only was your dream legitimately from Zeus, but that Zeus is not messing with us, despite manipulating us into a war for nine years. And, oh, okay, yeah, Agamemnon was already making the announcement. Cool. To be fair, everyone was on board with this decision. In kind of the only non-sinister way Zeus has ever visited a character at night, Lying Dream conveyed the message that Agamemnon needed to attack right now. They could take Troy, don't ask questions, just attack. So, of course, Agamemnon decided to run the guys through a training exercise. After nine years of war, when your king stands up to address the troops in a panic and tells you to follow his orders, cut and run, sail home, this is a hopeless war and we'll never take the city, what do you do? I mean, I mean, you've just learned of your best warrior, Achilles, taking some me time next to his own ships, so what do you do? I can tell you what you don't do. You don't listen to your king and cut and run, because that's a very nice way to get a concussion from Odysseus' scepter. Okay, so I don't know if you've ever seen MasterChef Junior. It's part uplifting, with kids making these amazing dishes, and part Gordon Ramsay screaming at children. But every few episodes, there's a time where he yells at the kids to take off their aprons and get out of the kitchen. It's an obvious test to see if they're going to give up or if they still want to be in the competition. And they're all like, no, chef, I want to stay. That's the right answer in this situation. So if you find yourself being dressed down by Gordon Ramsay or by a 12th century BC Greek warlord, the right answer is just don't go anywhere. Fired up and recommitted or hospitalized from the beatings, Agamemnon had everyone stand by their ships so they could take inventory of all the kings in attendance. And for the next 45 minutes, I'm going to tell you about every one of them. I'm just kidding. But if you want to, it's a famously long passage. It's right there in book two. And anyone who has read or tried to read the Iliad knows exactly what I am talking about. Helen looked out from the walls, on Menelaus, on Paris. Her life, her old life back in Greece, 
felt like a dream now. She could barely remember a time when she wasn't reviled. When she wasn't the daily reason people died from violence, starvation, or plague. The Greeks had marched on Troy that day. And since Achilles didn't march with them, the Trojans saw an opportunity. They emerged from their walls to face the Grecian force. And for some reason, Paris went first. When we last left Paris, he wasn't great. He was either seducing Helen away from Menelaus or full-on kidnapping her. But as time passed, he refused to both send Helen back or take any responsibility for his part in causing the whole conflict. And it became more and more clear to Hector and Priam that Paris was the worst. Presenting this on full display for the Greek army, he was taunting them. Because why not throw salt on the wound? Hector approached him. What was he doing? Paris knew he was the reason children were dying in the streets, right? That better men than him were going daily to Hades. If the people of Troy weren't cowards, they would have stoned Paris to death years ago. Paris said that Hector couldn't talk to him like that. He was a son of Priam. Hector said that, yeah, he was too. There's like 25 of us. Chill. Paris asked if Hector wanted this war to end so bad, then Paris would end it himself. Today. He would take on Helen's husband in single combat. A fight to the death to end the war. Is that what Hector wanted? For his brother to die? Hector nodded. Wow. Paris would do that? That sounded awesome. Yes. He'd go talk to the Greek guys. Be right back. Paris said that that's what he thought. Wait, what? Hector signaled for the Greek guys to not shoot him on sight. And together with his top men and dad, met the Greek leaders in the no man's land between the two armies. Unsurprisingly, the burly, angry, seasoned warrior that was Menelaus was very much into fighting the slender, perfumed Paris. To seal the deal, they killed some lambs, declared a provisional truce, and Priam, the king of Troy, told his son that he was proud of the man's sacrifice to save the city. For all of his life, he thought Paris was just a complete waste. The worst. But here, in this action, with his death, he would prove them all wrong. Paris, who awkwardly gripped his spear, said that uh, he could win. Priam patted his son on the back. Even in his last moments, he was injecting their lives with levity. Wonderful. Goodbye, son. Paris took a deep breath and looked on the angry lump of muscle holding a spear in front of him. Menelaus, the man whose wife with whom he had absconded from Sparta. Paris swallowed hard and put on his helmet. No one was incredibly surprised when, minutes later, Menelaus was swinging Paris around by his helmet, the Trojan prince being strangled by his own chin strap. And Paris would have died like that, ending the war without another drop of blood, if not for the gods. The world slowed down to all but Paris. And the prince heard a snap. Air rushed back into his lungs, and he stumbled to the ground. When he caught his breath, he found he was looking into a familiar, beautiful face. Aphrodite, still making good on Paris's ruling for the contest, had saved his life. In slow motion, Paris was watching Menelaus toss the broken strap away from his hand and grip his spear, his gaze turned to Paris on the ground. Paris winced and brought his hands up to block his face, but 
smelled perfume. Well, more perfume than normal. He didn't feel the hard ground of the battlefield beneath him either. He was in a soft bed. On the walls of Troy, Helen gasped as, when Menelaus went in for the kill, dust like a mist sprang up from nowhere. Menelaus coughed and waved it away, but when he did, Paris was gone. Helen felt a tap on her own shoulder. The world slowed down. She heard a voice behind her. Paris waits for you in his bedroom. He's glistening in his robes. You'd never think he just came from war, the sultry voice said into her ear. Helen felt her heart begin to race as thoughts of Paris flooded into her mind and... No! No, she knew this feeling. This feeling had been there on that night. A mix of extreme attraction and repulsion. This feeling is why she had been taken away from her husband, her daughter. This was the god's work. Helen turned, looking Aphrodite in the eye. She had done this. She had led Helen, Troy, Greece, thousands of men to their ruin for what? Some prince who can't even die like a man? No. Go to him yourself. Be shamed for him. Suffer for him. Helen had enough. She would never go back to him. Aphrodite's eyes turned to scorn. She loved Helen. She did. But Helen would never talk to her like that again. Helen would go to Paris and be with him. Now, Aphrodite could incite all sorts of passion. Love and hate weren't that far apart. This was Helen's first and final warning. Helen broke. She could see the Olympian was serious. The gods had mobilized kingdoms, killed thousands, and she heard the old stories. She knew that their hate, their punishment, might not end with death. She bowed her head and nodded. Aphrodite gestured, and Helen left the wall unseen. Out on the battlefield, Menelaus hunted. He hunted the man who shamed him, the man who was now with his wife in a big, carved bed. He didn't know that Aphrodite wasn't the only Olympian on the battlefield. Out, walking among the Trojan troops at the behest of her father, Athena whispered into the ear of an archer. Sure, there was a truce, but Menelaus walked among them unarmored. How much fame would the archer win if he took the shot? He will be the hero that won the war. So that's why, among the Trojan army, a solitary archer knocked an arrow, took aim, and let it fly. Guided by a goddess, the arrow found its mark, sinking into the side of one of the Greek kings. Menelaus, brother of Agamemnon and the husband of Helen, himself the instigator of the war, took an arrow to his side and went down. The Greeks have absolutely never heard of the sunk cost fallacy. So next week, we'll see the nine-year-long war continue to rage on. If you'd like to support the show, 
There's the store at mythpodcast.com slash store, and there's still the membership. There are ad-free episodes and nearly 50 bonus episodes available right now. Additionally, this month we're going to be doing Troy stories, uh, where I'll be telling the stories of some of the other stuff that happened in those nine years, from when the Greeks left Aulis to when Achilles raged. You can find the membership at support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the little tofu boy, or tofu kozu, from Japanese folklore. If you happen to be out one evening, heading home after any number of things, and you hear a pitter-patter of feet behind you, take a look before you panic. In the darkness, you might squint into the shadows, only to find what appears to be a non-threatening little boy in a broad-brimmed hat, and little boy's kimono, holding a... what's that? A plate of tofu? Take a closer look. Does this guy have claw-tipped hands and feet? Is his head exceptionally large? And is it raining out? If it checks all those boxes, breathe a sigh of relief. You're actually in a pretty rare situation. On rainy evenings, the little tofu boy has been known to follow strangers home. Nobody knows why. His primary role is to be a servant. And unfortunately, some of the other creatures take advantage of this bullying and making fun of his lack of physical strength. Really, it boils down to a lack of respect. His exact origin remains unknown. Some say he's one of the many forms of the shape-shifting weasel that we talked about a long time ago. Others think he's just a marketing stunt, simply designed to sell books. What we do know is that this little guy loves tofu and city life. So yeah, don't panic, because he's actually really nice. Invite him inside. Or... Uh, Maybe don't, because he's a little boy, and that might make you the extra creepy one. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>